And I'll be reading this morning the whole chapter and attempting to cover uh, all 13 verses, although we won't exhaust them. I hope to help you understand them somewhat. So Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun, a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come once again to your word. May we feel the weightiness of it. May we humble ourselves before its truths, as hard as they are at times sometimes to understand and swallow. And Lord, may we have a sober-mindedness about the reality that you are coming. You are reigning now, and you are returning soon. And Lord, help us to live in light of this. Help these words as we study them to cause us to set our hope fully on the grace of God that is to be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to a transition in the book of Revelation where we've looked at the seven seals, and now we start hearing about the seven trumpets. Well, when it comes to musical instruments, there is no more ear-grabbing, attention-getting instrument than the trumpet. The sound produced by a trumpet is impossible to ignore, which is why the trumpet had a very prominent place in the ancient world as the instrument of announcement and the instrument of alarm. So for example, a trumpet would be sounded to capture the attention of the people before a king issued a royal decree to his subjects. So the trumpet sounds, the people listen, and the decree is issued from the king. Or a trumpet would be sounded from a soldier who at night was sitting in a watchtower looking at the sea to warn the people that enemy ships have been sighted. It's time to take arms. Well, the trumpet does not likely serve this same function in your life today. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing most of you don't have an everyday experience with a trumpet unless you're uh, an instrument player or something like that. But we do, on a very regular basis, interact with and hear instruments of announcement 
an alarm. For example, the ring of a cell phone announces that someone is calling you. The ring of a doorbell announces that someone is visiting you or has dropped off a package. Or if you're like me at my house, the chime of a door sensor announces that one of your kids is trying to escape and you need to find them. (laughs) Or for those of you who remember watching TV and the emergency broadcast system rings and gets this loud, very arresting noise so that you'll pay attention to the announcement that's about to flash across your screen. Or the alarms on our clocks or phones warn us that it's time to get up. If we keep sleeping in, we're going to be late. Or now I've noticed that the newest fridges, that if you leave the door open or if it's even just cracked, there's an alarm that goes off announcing that the fridge is open and you need to shut it. Or if you have a newer car, it has sensors all around that if you're backing up or if you even put it in reverse and someone's behind you, it starts beeping, setting off an alarm, announcing that there's an object behind you. So we might not have trumpets, but we have instruments of announcement and alarm that we interact with every single day. And in each case, there is an ear-grabbing, attention-getting sound that is produced because there's an important message we need to hear or a warning that we need to take heed of. And that's the significance. That's the symbolism behind these series of seven trumpets that we're gonna begin looking at this morning. Essentially, the message of each trumpet is this. Each trumpet blast is the sounding of a divine spiritual alarm. It is alarm sound sent from heaven, announcing and warning that the idols of this world are failing and the kingdom of this fallen world is collapsing. And we need to heed that warning. So each trumpet is a divine heaven sent alarm that is sounding an announcement that we need to hear that the idols of this world are failing and the kingdom of this world is collapsing. Now to see that, we have to understand there are two significant Old Testament backgrounds that's going on here in these seven trumpets. The first one is the connection to these trumpets and the story of the Israelites in Jericho. So if you recall, in in Joshua chapter six, Israel has been uh, led by Joshua to cross the river into the promised land. And the first place they meet is the city of Jericho. And it's this fortified city. It's walled and surrounded by walls. And the people in a sense, are are not up to the task of being able to topple this city. And yet here is the strategy for the battle that the Lord gives them. Take seven priests and give them seven trumpets and have the people march around the city while the priests sound the trumpets. I don't don't know about you, but if if that were the general of my army giving me that instruction, I would think, I'm in the wrong army. I need to go, we need to find someone else who's got a better battle strategy. And yet they do that for six consecutive days as the people of Jericho hear these trumpets going on and on and on, then on the seventh day, at the seventh blast of the trumpet, the people shout and the nation of Jericho crumbles to the ground. And so the significance of this is that story was lodged in the collective memory of the people of God. So if you knew your Old Testament at all, whenever you thought about the blast of a trumpet, you thought about when God sovereignly granted you victory over a nation that you could not have faced in and of yourself and yet he brought it crumbling to the ground. So that's one significant Old Testament background. The other is the plagues that God visited upon Egypt. As God was preparing to deliver his people out of bondage from Egypt, there was plagues that he sent to show Pharaoh the answer to his question, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And Pharaoh wasn't genuinely asking that question. He was saying, I'm Pharaoh the greatest king on the earth at this time, why should I listen to the Lord? And the Lord showed him over and over again who he was. 
And the reason I bring that up is because in each of the blasts of the trumpets, what happens is a parallel to some of the plagues that were sent upon Egypt. So listen to Exodus 7:17. This is Moses announcing the first plague to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Now look at verse 8 of Revelation 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And notice what happens. And a third of the sea became blood. Now, I, I could go into many more connections, but just take it as a homework assignment. Look at the plagues in Egypt, then look at Revelation 8 and all the trumpets and see all the connections that are explicitly or implicitly made there. And the reason that is happening is because of the same reason of the connection to Jericho. The story of Egypt is another case in which the people of God came against an enemy that stood in their way, that they could not defeat in and of themselves, and yet through the sovereign power and might of the Lord, he brought that nation crumbling to the ground. And so the significance in these connections is meant to be an encouragement to the church. That though the kingdoms of this world oppose the people of God, they've done it before and they've always done it unsuccessfully. The the people of God have always been opposed, but they've always been opposed ultimately unsuccessfully. So just as the Jerichos and Egypts of old stood in the way of the people of God as a journey toward the promised land, so we should not be surprised when we face Jericho and Egypt-like opposition as we are journeying toward the celestial city. But we should remain hopeful And remember that the same God who brought Jericho and Egypt crumbling to the ground is our God. And that no weapon forged against the Lord and his people will ever prosper ultimately. Yes, they will oppose us, but they will do so ultimately unsuccessfully. We need to remember this because it is easy to look around circumstantially at the culture and get intimidated or discouraged by the direction it's going, by the opposition we see on the horizon, whether real or perceived, from this fallen world, and in one sense to be surprised by it. And yet, what does First Peter say? Do not be surprised at the fiery trials that come among you. It, it's expected. And yet, we should not only not be surprised, we should not be discouraged. We should not lose heart because we need to remember the words that Moses spoke to Israel as they had the Red Sea of water in front of them and a marching Egyptian army behind them. This is what he said. Fear not, people. Stand firm and see the salvation that the Lord will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. The Lord who stopped the enemies, who opposed God's people in the past, will do so in the future. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, speaking of the silence that Moses commanded the people to have in the face of these threats, notice the first thing we meet with in verse one of chapter eight. John records for us, that there's the opening of the seventh seal and there's all this expectation with it and yet, what do we meet with? When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So just review where we've come from. So we had the opening of the seventh seal starting in chapter six. We got to the sixth seal and then there was kind of this brief excursus, this, this kind of interlude where God places his seal of protection on his people saying, I will uphold you and I will keep you in all the trials that these seals are bringing. Do not fear because you will be upheld. 
And then after that excursus, we come back and the seventh seal is being opened. And remember, seven is a number, that symbolic number of completion, perfection, fullness. In seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. So at the seventh seal, we expect something of fullness and completion to happen, but instead we're only given a description of silence that's in heaven. So with with the sixth seal, there was almost this anticipation of the great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. With the seventh seal, we expect to hear something about what those events are like, and yet there's only silence in heaven for a brief period of time. Now, before I explain what I think is the significance of this silence, we need to ask the question about the structure of the book of Revelation. Now, I know this is riveting stuff, and you're really excited about this, but believe it or not, the structure to the book of Revelation is a massively debated issue that you, in one sense, you have to address because of how the book unfolds. And for free today, I have given you a chart in your bulletin. What, what series of Revelation would be complete without some good charts, right? We need good charts. Well, when it comes to the book of Revelation, everyone pretty much agrees on the bookends of Revelation. Revelation 4 and 5 is kind of that front bookend where we see a picture of the ascension of Christ. Christ who has been slain and risen now ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father. And all of heaven worships him, worthy as the Lamb who was slain. And then the other bookend is Revelation 21 and 22. The Lamb who was slain and risen and ascended now returns and he sets up his eternal kingdom. We get this picture of a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So everyone agrees on those bookends. The question is, what do we do with everything in between? This is where all the ink is spilled. This is where kind of friendships are broken, as it were, as people ask the question, what do we do with everything in between? And in my view... What John describes in between, like with the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, is not strictly limited to a specific period of time in the first century or the seven-year period at the end of history. Instead, John is describing patterns that are going to permeate all of church history, but are going to come to a climactic point at the return of Christ. And in a sense, what I see as happening in the middle of Revelation is John describing the pattern of what is going to happen in the time between the times. There's two points of history that we need to know, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And Revelation is helping us see what kind of patterns are going to permeate history and what should the church expect as we await the return of Christ. Well, if that's the case, then the question becomes, well, what's the relationship then between the seven seals, which is then followed by the seven trumpets, which is then followed by the seven bowls? Some see them as having a sequential chronological relationship. For example, one commentator I read, Warren Wearsby, argued that the seven seals describe what happens at the beginning of the tribulation. And then the seven trumpets describe what happens in the middle of the tribulation. And then the seven bowls describe what happens at the end of the tribulation. So he sees them as kind of chronologically unfolding. And so they're related as one follows after the other in kind of a a time sequence. My view is that these sets of seven that we see The relationship between them is one of parallel progression. Parallel progression. What I mean by that is, each of these visions that John sees, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, are actually running parallel to one another. So they're more or less covering the same period of history from a slightly different angle with slightly different imagery and Old Testament background. So so think of it like this. When you watch a a sporting event, like I I hear there's going to be one tonight, that great catch, that, that winning buzzer beater, whenever that happens, 
what happens immediately after that? It's replayed over and over again, but always from different angles. So you get this kind of panoramic view of the same thing. Now you're seeing it from different angles, but you're seeing the same thing so that you can get a panoramic view of that kind of game-altering moment. Or think of this parallel relationship as the relationship between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you get two accounts of the creation story. Not contradictory, but complementary. Genesis 1 is kind of that wide-angle lens view of creation as God makes all things by the word of his power in the space of six days. And then in Genesis 2, you get a zoom-angle lens view of creation as we zoom into a particular point in that creation week and a particular person, Adam, and then Eve. That's how this relationship between seals and trumpets and bulls, and bulls they're, they're parallel to one another, covering the same period of history from different angles, emphasizing different truths with different Old Testament backgrounds. Now, that sounds good, Andrew, but do you have any proof? I'm glad you asked. Look at Revelation 6, 12 to 13. So this is from the seven seals. So if we have the chronological view, everything happens in kind of sequential order, or we have the parallel view, the question is what holds up best to the evidence in the text itself? Revelation 6, 12 to 13 records the opening of the sixth seal this way. When the lamb opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So we here have a vision of the heavenly bodies, the sky, and it's dark. And there's a darkness over everything. Well, look, jump over to Revelation 8, verse 12. Revelation 8, verse 12. So, if we have a chronological view, the, the sun is dark, the stars have fallen, the moon is blood red, and then we come to Revelation 8:12, which records the sounding of the fourth trumpet. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the th- a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, do you see, if you approach Revelation in a rigidly literal and chronological way, you have some issues here. Because how can the sun, which was blacked out in Revelation 6, now be partially blocked out in Revelation 8? How can the stars, which are gone in Revelation 6, now only be a third shining or a two-thirds shining in Revelation 8? You, have, you start to run into problems if you have a rigidly literalistic and chronological view. But... If you approach Revelation, understanding that John is communicating his visions which run parallel to one another in highly symbolic language drawn from the Old Testament, then you realize that these are both different ways of saying to a degree that the old created order is dissolving, that it is fading away and because a new creation is coming, that God is in one sense shutting out or dimming the lights on the old created order to remind people that a new creation is coming and this old way is passing away. And so I I think that's just, I could go into more ones, um, but it's important to realize that these visions run parallel to one another. But it's equally important to understand that there is a progression with each subsequent vision. So there's not only parallel, but there's a progression because there's drama in Revelation. And the drama is wrapped up in the question that the martyrs asked, how long, O Lord? How long until you will bring vengeance on the earth? How long until your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven? And with each vision that John relays to his church, he brings us closer 
and closer and closer to the return of Christ. So what we have at the end of the seventh seal is the silence that precedes the coming of Christ. It's as if he, he brings us right up to that moment before and there's silence as they wait, the lamb leaving his throne and, and returning to earth, and yet it stops. But then when we come to the end of the seven trumpets, we get even closer. And we come to the end of the seven bowls, we get even closer. And then finally, when we get to the end of the book, Christ has returned on the white horse of victory. He has brought about the final judgment and he has established his eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And the whole point of the drama of the book as it moves us closer and closer is as the book moves closer to the return of Christ, so our hearts are meant to move closer and closer to a longing for Christ's return. And then the book ends with, come Lord Jesus. The cry that the church should be saying over and over again, come Lord Jesus. Now, I hope that makes sense to you because if you're not, uh, I've not done my job well, but you have a chart here just in case I didn't make sense that each of the subsequent visions runs parallel to one another, but each one moves closer and closer to the final end of all things, the return of Christ and the final judgment. So now let's leave that detour and come back to the main road. Verse one of Revelation eight, why the silence in heaven? Well, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture, especially the Old Testament prophets. Listen to these statements from the prophets. Zephaniah 1, 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. That's Zephaniah 1, 7. Then Zechariah 2, 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Silence in the Bible, especially from the people of God, is that calm before the storm of God's activity. It's that holy hush before the God in all his holiness is going to act and perform his mighty deeds to bring about that great and final day of the Lord. But it's also, in one sense, a picture of an appropriate way to stand and or sit in the presence of a holy God. We think about, in our world, we are constantly bombarded with noise. Noise is almost constant for us. Um, and for some of us, it's so constant that we're never silent. There's never that moment to silently calm ourselves before the Lord and just ponder who he is and who we are in light of him. I mean, one of the reasons I love the Lord's Day and this occasion in corporate worship is because I get to set aside everything. I don't have to worry about my phone, uh, my finances, anything. I worry about my kids because they run around the building. But other than that, I'm focused in here because it is good for us to be silent before the Lord. Not just silence for silence sake. We're not, we're not playing the quiet game but silence before the Lord in the sense of contemplating who he is reigning in our thoughts, all the things that would distract us, that would move us away from fixating on him and taking stock of the fact that we sit before the eternal, infinite, holy God and we are not him. Silence is that moment to pause and take a spiritual deep breath before we rush into our devotions, our, our duties for the day, the activities, whatever is there for us and that we remember that God is on his throne ruling and reigning, and we are not. That we hold our plans loosely for the day because God holds all things in his hands. So in a world that is starved for the silence of contemplation before the Lord, when is the last time you were silent before the Lord and reflected on who he is and who you are in light of him? When is the last time you silently pondered and reflected on the fact that Christ is coming again? That, that this world as it is in its present order is not gonna remain this way that a new heavens and new earth is coming. 
Well, as we move in our text, notice that we move from silence to the sound of the church praying. There's supplication in heaven. Look at verses two through five. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Well, in this scene, the church is given a heavenly perspective on their prayers. And this is important because many times we do wonder and ask the question, when I pray, does does anything happen? Is anyone listening? We kind of view our prayers sometimes like sending an email to customer service. Is anyone going to read it and is anyone going to respond? And yet here in this text, we see that the prayers of God's people are always presented before the throne of grace like sweet incense before our heavenly father. Your prayers are presented to God as an offering of praise and gratitude and dependence. And God is not too hard of hearing. He's not too busy to listen. Instead, he delights to bend his ear to the cries of his children. They're open. He is open and attentive to his children. And perhaps you struggle in your motivation to pray because you wonder, does prayer do anything? Does prayer accomplish anything? Well, Notice the relationship between verse four and verse five. Look there with me. So verse four, speaking of the the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, it rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then verse five, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And I think one of the relationships we're supposed to see between those two verses is that in response to the prayers of the saints, activity starts happening on earth. God starts executing his plan on earth. And we've already heard one of the prayers of the saints in heaven. How long, O Lord, till you will bring vengeance and justice on the earth? And in one sense, here are some of the answers to that, that God is responding to, that's the right word, to the prayers of his people, and he is acting. Now, I don't know how to unravel all the mysteries of how God's sovereignty and his predetermined plan relates to the prayers we pray right now in time and space. Yet I do know this. God in his sovereignty has chosen prayer as one of the means by which he brings about his preordained plan. That God has chosen to work through means. And one of the means he has chosen to work through is the prayers of his people. As they call on him, as they plead with him, as they bring his promises before his throne. And because of that, the church should be a praying church. The house of God should be a house of prayer. You know, in one sense, I'm always encouraged to hear as a congregation, the different people who are praying for me, for people in the church. And I would just encourage that more and more. One of the, the second most important book for you next to the Bible is the church directory. Praying for these people whom you have kind of covenanted with to be members of the flock of God here at Santa Harbor with. And we should pray together as a church because God has determined that one of the means by which he acts is the prayers of his people which ascend before him. So some have said, if God is sovereign, why pray? And it's a fair question to ask, but I think in reality it should go like this. Since God is sovereign, therefore the church should pray. What other God would we pray to than a sovereign God? I mean, imagine if someone came to me and said, Andrew, my car broke down and I really could use your help. 
That would be the most foolish thing anyone could do in the world. All I know is how to help you check your blinker fluid. After that, you're on your own, okay? I am of no help to anyone who has a mechanical problem. If God is not sovereign, why would we go to him with any request, any supplication, any need? Why would we pray to God to save this person that we've been praying for if God's like, hey, you know, really, it's up to you, it's up to them. I'm just here to encourage you. No, we pray because God is sovereign. He's the, it's the only kind of God to pray to. And so as John Newton said in his famous hymn, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Very good, encouraging words indeed. Well, we have silence, then we have supplication, and now we come to the sounding of a spiritual alarm. Look at verse six. Now the seven angels who had been given those trumpets, prepared to blow them. Now, instead of looking at all of these individually, I think we're meant to take the first four as a group and understand the collective message that they sound as these alarms start going off. And notice there is a connection between all of them. The connection point in the first four trumpets is that the plagues that are released by them strike one of the four different regions of the created world. Look at verse seven. So the first trumpet in verse seven focuses on the region of the earth, the dry land, trees, grass. Second trumpet in verse eight and nine focuses on the region of the sea, the place where ships are and travel. Then the third trumpet in verses 10 and 11 on the region of fresh water, that that drinking source, the springs of water. And then finally, the fourth trumpet in verse 12 focuses on the region of the sky. So dry land and then sea, and then fresh water, and then the sky. It's, it's covering kind of the four domains of creation. And sometimes it's easy to try to dig into all the minute detail where we, we miss the forest for the trees. And I don't want to do that. What John is showing us here is that no domain of the created world is safe from these plagues. Every region of creation is utilized by the Lord to sound a spiritual alarm and send a message to every single creature. And one of the Old Testament backgrounds I think is going on here is what the Lord told his people in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I'll read it for you. God has established his covenant with his people. He's laid out the stipulations. I'm the creator and redeemer. You are my people. Here's what it means to live before me. And he says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Now what's going on there, and this is a phrase I I call heaven and earth to witness against you. Over and over, it's as if heaven and earth are standing there as the witnesses who sign that official document, that covenant document, and that heaven and earth will testify against the people if they rebel and turn against their creator. And so what I think is going on is that these trumpet blasts are referring to providential disasters and distresses in the created world that God is using to testify against rebellious humanity through heaven and earth that they have turned against him, that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Think about what insurance companies call these providential disasters that often permeate our world. They call them acts of God. Now, I don't know if they're, they're very good theologians, but they're better than they may be by calling it that because in one sense, that's what it is. Yes, in another sense, we live in a fallen world that is groaning for redemption. But in another sense, we live in a world that God is governing and ruling by sovereign power, and he's using the providential things that happen 
as a way of sounding a spiritual alarm that we might wake up and heed these warnings. And what is the warning that heaven and earth are providentially saying to people? Well, one sense you could say it's like this. To the people on the earth, if your life motto is you only live once or eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, then you of all people are most to be pitied because the idols of this world will fail you and the kingdom of this world will collapse. And what good will it be to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? If in this life only we have hope, then we are most people to be pitied because the idols of this world will fail and the kingdom of this fallen world will collapse. Now in our experience, the closest thing we have to something like this is the looming threat of a hurricane, right? Every time we hear the announcement, it's coming, it's forming out there, and the track is gonna run through here, it is a providential opportunity to take some sober evaluation, right? Whenever that's come, there is a sense of what it, it's like watching the hurricane, someone says, it's like being stalked by a turtle, right? It's just slowly moving and inching towards you. And whereas in the past, before you kind of all the technology, we, we just kind of, you wouldn't know until last minute. Now we kind of know way ahead of time, almost in my opinion, too far ahead of time. And everyone panics. And yet in the panic, God providentially is saying, think, evaluate, look at your life. Ask the question, where is my treasure being stored? Is it here? Where is my true citizenship? Is it here or is it in heaven? And if worse comes to worse, have I come to love God's gifts and blessings on this world so much that if I lose them, will I still be able to say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? You know, most time our, our only prayer if a hurricane has come is that God would send it towards someone else. It's like, they probably need to learn that lesson more than we do. And yet, anywhere the hurricane hits, wherever it hits, even if it doesn't hit here, it is an opportunity to evaluate if that were me. How would I respond? What would it show me about my heart, my citizenship, my hope? All these things. And I think the reason I see these as providential disasters that the Lord sends as a spiritual arm is because that's how Jesus spoke about them. Turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 13. This is one of the most interesting interactions that Jesus has with anyone in the Gospels. It's a time where when someone comes to Jesus with a question and he gives an answer, you're stunned at the answer that Jesus gives. This is not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, seeking friends and influencing people. Luke 13. Jesus is talking just before this in Luke 12 about learning to interpret the times properly. That you, you can look and see the weather and, you know, something, there's like a, a, a rhyme about red sky at night, sailors, something like that. I don't know what it is. I stay on land for good reason. But he's saying, you know how to interpret the weather patterns, and yet you do not know how to interpret the times. I'm here, something is happening. Well, then some people come to him with things that have happened providentially, and they say, Jesus, how should we interpret these? Look at Luke 13. There were some present at that very time, hearing Jesus talk about knowing how to interpret the times, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this occasion where Pilate or his soldiers had slaughtered some Galileans who were either carrying their sacrifices to the temple or were offering them in the temple, and their blood got mingled with the sacrifice. This was a tragedy, something that struck, and the people in that community knew about it, and they wondered, Jesus, how should we understand this? And you think, what is Jesus going to say? Look at verse 2. And he answered them, 
Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now talk about going for sympathy and coming away with something else. What Jesus is saying is, I understand why you're asking this. You're wondering, they suffered this way because they must have been really bad sinners. That, that was their kind of operating mode, just like Job's friends. Job, you're suffering because you must have done something really bad and you better figure it out. And that's not always the case. And what Jesus is saying is, do you think that anyone else in all of Galilee, in all the world, is any less guilty than these people before God when they evaluate their sins? If God should mark our iniquities, who could stand? He says, you shouldn't wonder why it happened to them. You should wonder, why did it not happen to me? When any tragedy strikes, any earthquake in Syria that claims about 10,000 people's lives, the question, first and foremost, is not why did that happen, but why did God spare me from that? Knowing myself as I really am, why did God spare me? And each one of those providential disasters is the smelling salt of eternity put in our nose saying, wake up and be reconciled to God. Know that this world is passing away in its present order and a new heavens and new earth is coming and we need to be right with the one who is coming again. And then Jesus goes even further. He doesn't stop there. Verse four of Luke 13. He, he brings up his own example. What about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? So there's a construction accident. It falls and kills them. He said, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Do you think that it fell on them because they were sinners more than others? He said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Every disaster that strikes this world is in one sense a moment to be sober-minded and reflecting on where do I stand with the Lord? If that were me, where would I go? What would happen? It's meant to be the sounding of a spiritual alarm that says repent and be reconciled to God. And yet, there is a message of mercy mingled in with these messages of judgment. For the Christian... Whenever we look around at a disaster, a distress that goes on around us, we need to remember this. In Christ, you have an unshakable, untouchable peace with God because you have been justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that no matter what goes on, you need never fear the judgment of God because you have been saved by Christ from the wrath to come. Because the love of God made a way for the justice of God to be satisfied so that we could experience the grace of God. The love of God sends the Son of God to bear the justice of God so that we can receive the grace of God. Every providential judgment reminds us, I need not fear the judgment of God because my sentence was already passed 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. And there is no judgment left for me because he who knew no sin became sin for me so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. That is the message of mercy mingled in with the message of judgment. And for those who are not Christians, the message of mercy that is mingled in with these providential spiritual alarms is that you need not face the ultimate judgment of which this is just a bitter foretaste and a small preview because Christ offers himself to all freely without exception saying, I will exchange your sin for my righteousness. I will trade your guilt for my grace, your curse and judgment for my blessing. And this is an offer we dare not refuse. And if we have received it, that we embrace it and rejoice in it fully because we know that the sands of time are sinking with every spiritual arm. It's getting closer and closer to, to that moment when Christ returns and the dawn of heaven breaks. In light of that, let's pray.